Let's turn to God's Word as we find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. If you're following in the Pew Bibles, that's page 150. Just a a few weeks left in this series, but we're coming into one of the, the significant chapters, chapter 14. And this is God's Word. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them an oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time in Egypt, they left Egypt until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them. As you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert 
but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. And we'll end our reading at verse 25. May God bless his word to us. Two people can be in the same environment, in the same room, maybe even in the same pew, breathing the same air, seeing the same sights. One sees obstacles, is filled with fear, sees the difficulties. The other person sees opportunities, potential, vision. What makes the difference? Well, in one, it's the absence or the presence of faith. It's the absence or the presence of trust. It's the absence or the presence of wholeheartedness, believing in God and what he can do. A commentary I I read as I was preparing this message suggested that in the Lord's work, pessimism has done more harm than atheism. In the Lord's work, pessimism has done more harm than atheism. Last week in chapter 13 of Numbers, we saw that Israel had been drawn to the brink of Canaan, the promised land. The spies had been sent in. Twelve men from twelve different tribes were sent into the land to explore it, to bring back its fruit, and to give a survey of what they had found. One report, the majority report of ten, played down the fruit, the milk and honey of the land, and played up and emphasized the walled cities, the fortresses, the people who they said were like giants, and we were like grasshoppers. But two of the men, Caleb and Joshua, the minority report, they also had seen the fruit. They emphasized the fruitfulness of the land. They had seen the giants, so-called giants, but they emphasized the faithfulness of God. They emphasized what God had done in the past, what God could do in the future. They emphasized the promise that God had said to them, this land is for you. Majority report of 10, minority report of 2. Two groups of people who saw and experienced the same things but came to different conclusions. The majority report tragically and sadly gains traction among the people. They don't see the fruitfulness of the land. They don't see God's promises. They don't see what he has done for them to get them to to hear that he'd been delivering them from Egypt. He'd taken them out of slavery. He'd been providing them with manna for the last couple of years to feed them each day. He brought them across the Red Sea. They played all these things down. And in fact, they talk about going back to Egypt. 
And so coming into chapter 14, we see that the majority report begins to gain traction amongst the people, and they begin to rebel against the leadership, and more importantly, they begin to rebel against God. Moses and Aaron fall face down in grief and prayer and intercession, and Joshua and Caleb plead with the people. They plead with them. God is with us. We can do this. Now, this is one of the darkest moments in the history of Israel. I don't know if you're familiar with the the writings of Malcolm Gladwell, but he wrote a book once called The Tipping Point. And this was a tipping point, and various factors had contributed to this, but this was a tipping point for Israel. And unfortunately and sadly, it tips the wrong way. And of course, this is immensely hurtful to God. The God we worship is a personal God. He's a God who has feelings. And this is a personal slight upon him. He has, at great sacrifice, brought the Israelites out of of Egypt. He has helped them across the Red Sea. He has delivered them. He has provided for them. And he has promised, he promised 400 years previous to this point, he promised them that this land would be theirs. You see, in Genesis chapter 15, God spoke to Abraham in a dream prophetically. And this is what he says in Genesis 15. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to Abraham in this dream, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That's Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they, afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, Abraham, will go to your ancestors in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So over this period of 400 years, basically the Amorites and the Canaanites and all those other ites, God had, had patiently uh, forborne. He had, he had resisted any, any judgment upon them. But the sin of the Amorites was building and building and building and building to this point where 400 years later, God had brought Israel to the, to the edge of this land. And this was now God's timing for God's people. This is what some people might refer to as a kairos moment, a significant moment, a special moment when God is aligning various things and he, in his will, he, he, has, he has a purpose, he has something he wants to accomplish. It's similar to what we read in Galatians 4 verse 4, where it says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. And here in the fullness of time, in the word he spoke to Abraham, 400 years have have materialized. A lot has happened. Been a lot of water under the bridge. But this is a kairos moment for God and for God's people. And they mess it up. They miss it. You see, in the great purposes of God, there are occasions in the Old Testament where we're told that God's patience runs out. His his anger comes to the fore. Uh, We see it back in Genesis where we have the flood, 
where he speaks to Noah and he says, Noah, this, this whole generation is just so evil. They're doing so many wrong things. I'm just fed up with them. But you, Noah, are going to survive. Your family's going to survive. I'm going to send rain. There's going to be a flood. I want to start again. And, and we know the story. In Exodus, uh, we find uh, with Moses and the children of Israel, when Moses is up getting the, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, there's the golden calf incident. And again, there's rebellion of the people against God, and, and uh, God again pours out his wrath, uh, and there, there's, there's people who lose their lives. And here again, we see this kind of scenario where, where God's patience is really being tested. And in verse 12, God actually says to Moses, I can't put up with this generation. They're rebelling. I think it mentions 10 times. They keep rebelling against me. I'm going to, you know, rub it out as it were. I'm going to start again with you, Moses. I'm going to start afresh. And I, I imagine Moses, this is a real temptation for him to say, well, this is a chance for me to get glory here. God wants to restart everything through me. But Moses doesn't, doesn't take that temptation. He says this to the Lord. He says, no, I want your glory to be uttermost. Not my glory. And he begins to pray for Israel. He prays, Lord, don't destroy Israel. The surrounding nations will see that you destroy them. They will conclude that you were not able to bring them into the promised land. You will be dishonored. You will be slandered. Lord, we want to see your glory. Forgive us. Yes, give us a fresh start. And so God listens to this prayer. And he says to Moses, he says, I will forgive them. I will forgive. So Moses' intercessory prayer, if we can put it in, a, in our common language, we can say it works. And God seems to change his mind. Now, in the mystery of the providence of God and the mystery of prayer, we're never quite sure how it works. We've got this tension between God who knows everything. We, we, we have already read that he knew history 400 years ago. He knew exactly what was going to happen at this point. But also he encourages us to pray and to intercede and to plead. And between the providence of God and the prayers of God's people, God's will is done. I don't fully understand this mystery. I really don't. But we are encouraged to pray. We're encouraged to be co-workers with God in his kingdom. And here we see Moses especially praying for the glory of God to be exalted. That God, the God of history, works within time. The God who's outside of history works within history. This is a mystery. But we're encouraged to pray as Moses prayed. And so God says, okay, I will not wipe out the whole nation of Israel and start again. I will forgive them. Because as we have it in verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. But then there's a yet, and this is the true picture of God. He's a God of, of love and forgiveness and reconciliation, but yet he's also a God of justice. Yet I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so he decides that, okay, he will not destroy them all. He will forgive them. But there are consequences. There are always consequences of our sin, aren't there? Even, you know, as Christians, we know about forgiveness. But we know that when we do things wrong, sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our sin. 
Sometimes we live with the consequences of our sin for years. We're forgiven, but we have to live with the consequences. And this was God's verdict. I will forgive you, but they must live with the consequences of their actions. Many of them are praying. Many of them are asking, let's go back to Egypt. Okay, I'll give them what they wish for. Turn around and head back towards the Red Sea. And for the next 40 years, they will go round and around and around and around the desert. And through that time, God will mature them. God will teach them. God will train them. God will sanctify them. And he will bring them to that point again where they're ready to cross. Only Joshua and Caleb of the spies, of the 12 spies, will see the promised land. Everyone else over these next 40 years of of that generation will die. The ones that were rescued from Egypt, they will die. Their children will see the promised land, but they themselves will not. They will live with the consequences of their rebellion. Imagine you were Joshua and Caleb. How would you feel? You know, if I, if, I was, if I was Joshua or Caleb, I'm thinking to myself, right, okay, I'm going to have to trudge around this blooming desert for another 40 years. I'll be fit to be tied. I mean, sometimes, yeah, maybe in your life, as in mine, sometimes a decision doesn't go your way. Uh, maybe it's a Kirk Session decision in leadership, doesn't go your way. Uh, maybe you're in a committee, there's been a decision made, doesn't go your way. Maybe you're at work, maybe you've been outvoted in something, or maybe there's a policy that is coming and you don't like it. Joshua and Caleb had to live with this decision for the next 40 years. And yet in faith and in perseverance, they swallowed it. And as one, uh, one commentary says, as far as they were concerned, it was a time for serving, not just of serving time. Even when we're disappointed, we put our shoulder to the wheel and we serve. Joshua and Caleb were given, especially Caleb, were given a special commendation. In verse 24, it says, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Are we men and women of a different spirit who follow God wholeheartedly? As we press into 2023, into a new year, will we wholeheartedly follow Jesus? It means keeping short accounts of sin, confessing it when we fall and fail. It means aligning ourselves with God's will and God's spirit. It means, unlike the majority of the spies here and the majority of the people, is to spot for those kairos moments. Those moments when God is significantly doing something and to join him in doing that. It's a reminder that if we are wholehearted, we're looking for those opportunities for evangelism. That we're looking for folks, maybe who we can invite invite to Alpha on Wednesday the 18th of January to come with them. It means so far as possible and more mundanely being at public worship Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday to worship to serve, to receive teaching. 
Disciples of Jesus are committed to the, to the Lord, to the head of the body, but they're also committed to the body, the church. And as we take the bread and wine shortly, it's a reminder not only of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's also a reminder of the commitment to the body, the body of Christ. Being wholehearted makes a difference. Uh, there's a lot of talk today <clears throat> on social media about being an influencer. Caleb and Joseph were influencers. Sadly, the majority did not listen to them. We are also influencers. We can influence people into, into and onwards in the kingdom. But we can never take people further than we have been. So we press in. We want to press in, press on, and then invite others to follow. Further up and further in for the sake of the one, Jesus, who gave his all for us. Jesus wholeheartedly gave his life for us. And so what better day to have communion, to rededicate ourselves to wholeheartedness for the Lord and to serve him. Maybe today will be a tipping point for someone here to grow closer to God in obedience there's two ways we can go. We can choose to grow closer to God. Or we can choose to drift. Drift back into the desert. Press forward into the promised land of all that God has for us. Which will it be? Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your word to our hearts. As we reflect on this tragedy of people who did not take you at your word, who did not rely in faith upon you. Lord, may we learn from it. May we be men and women with a different spirit, like Joshua and Caleb, determined to press on into what you have for us. May today be a Kairos moment for us, a significant moment where we rededicate ourselves to you. And what a better time, what better place than to do it around this table as we reflect on all that you have done for us and continue to do for us. You are faithful. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We love you, Jesus. Help us to follow you wholeheartedly. For your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen.